This is an ABC podcast. So where do you go when you really want to get a sense of what life is all about? To find out how bad things can get or what it feels like to be lost in the snow on a dark night or the explosive joy of swimming in a pond while it's raining or how it feels when people sneer at you when you've been forced to wear the same set of filthy clothes for a month or how frightened you become when you decide to tell someone you adore that you love them. For all that good stuff, you have to go to the Russians, the great Russian authors, people whose books have black spines and occupy shelf space in the classics section of a bookshop. This is something that George Saunders knows in his bones. George Saunders is one of the world's greatest and most loved short story writers and novelists. He's the author of Lincoln in the Bardo, which won the Man Booker Prize in 2017. George says that the Russian short story is kind of like a scale model of the world. And these stories ask big questions about how we're supposed to be living down here. And in case all of this sounds like hard work, I have to say that reading these stories, it's like eating chocolate. It's sheer pleasure. And afterwards, you wonder how you ever got by without the Russians in your life. In George's new book, he gathers together seven short stories by Chekhov, Tolstoy and Gogol. And then he invites us to step outside them and look at how the writer pulled it off. How did this long dead Russian with a beard manage to show us all these things and move us so much? This wonderful book is called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. Hello, George. Hello, Richard. How are you? That was a beautiful introduction. Thank you. This book comes out of a class that you've been teaching at a university in upstate New York for 20 years or so. Tell me about this class and what your students are typically like in this class. Yeah, I, I teach at Syracuse University, and we have one of the most renowned uh, creative writing programs in the U.S., and uh, we get about six to 700 applications a year for our program, and we only accept six people. And the reason for that is we want to we want to finance everybody 100% so nobody's going into big debt. So out of that six or 700, we have to select six, which is really difficult until the very end. And then it's kind of joyful because you you know, you feel like you are kind of in love with these six writers. <laughs> uh, so, so they're already good when they show up. They're, they're already, they've, they've always been the best writers in their group of peers. Uh, they can imitate anybody. They can do anything. And then we get them for three years and we try to mold them into I guess, you know, their best selves or, or we try to get them to the point where they're doing something that only they could do. And this Russian course is uh, one that I've taught for 20 years. It's, we call it a forms course. So it's kind of literature for writers. It's a standard literature course, but tilted a little bit to the side of craft. So rather than what, what are the themes, we're kind of asking how in the world did he get me so uh, agitated on page six or why did I burst into tears at the end of the story or conversely why did I feel like throwing the book across the room on page 15 the thought is that by approaching a story that way uh, certain kinds of ineffable knowledge will get into the body of the writer when she goes to do her own work you say that it's been in this classroom it's something you've only recently realized that in this classroom teaching these students it's there that you've had some of the best moments of your life how's that I think, you know, when I started, I, I suppose partly I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do the teaching and I'll be good at it. But of course, my real focus is always going to be writing. And it has been that way, except recently, as I kind of reached the end of that, that teaching career, uh, I, I was thinking back on how many 
uh, well, how whatever I've accomplished with my students, that actually kind of endures. It endures by transference. You know, if you help a kid be a better writer, or I think we even have the capability of, of sort of putting them at ease in their own self a little bit through this three-year course, that, you know, that endures. It, it, it affects their parenting, it affects their citizenship, and then many of them go on to be teachers and they pass it on. So it started to feel to me like my literary reputation is, as all literary reputations are, is rickety. You know, who knows in, in five years from now if it won't all be laughable. But when you're doing work close with young people, you feel that something is really happening. And in that class especially, I think because we weren't talking about their writing uh, and they didn't have to feel, you know, accused or nervous about it, we could just look at these Russians. We, I kind of jokingly used to call a story morgue. You know, we're just looking at a whole story <laughs> story. He's not alive anymore. He, he doesn't care what you think about it. You know, and then you, it takes the pressure off, and suddenly we're kind of end up celebrating this form, this mysterious, beautiful form that nobody's ever figured out. And uh, there have just been those moments when, you know, the distinction between teacher and student went away, and the age difference went away, and we're just kind of a hive mind trying to... Um, figure out slash worship at the the shrine of one of these beautiful uh, classic stories. You know, my mum was a kid from the country, and she read War and Peace and Anna Karenina by Tolstoy uh, seven mm. or eight times during the course of her life. It was She found both those novels mm. irresistible. And this is the problem I have. Well, I'm evangelical about the Russians. And so, mm. I, you know, I'll stop complete strangers in the street to tell them to read War and Peace. But they find it daunting. They, it feels to them, it seems to them, such as they seem like such landmarks. They seem daunting and complex and difficult. And I, I, I have trouble persuading them that it is like eating chocolate. These books are page turners. They're, they're irresistible. Yes. Have you found this to be the case? Yes. You know, I first read War and Peace when our kids were little and I had the flu and I was home from work for about a week and I thought, okay, I'm going to do this homework. I'm going to read this difficult, high-minded, you know, <laughs> philosophical book. And by about, it took me about, I think, 80 pages of, you know, kind of trying to figure the names out and all that stuff. And suddenly I was reading it the way you would watch a, a soap opera, or but deeper, you know, it was speaking to me. I saw people I knew in it and I, they had to pry it out of my hands at night. It was so good. So I don't know quite how the Russians got the reputation for being, uh, you know, formidable. Because I don't know a literature that's more human scaled. You know, you if you've ever, lo- as you said in the introduction, so beautifully, if you've ever loved or longed for somebody or lost somebody, or even if you just are slightly alert to the, you know, the strangeness of our social interactions with each other, um, the Russians will immediately begin speaking to you. And I think it's partly because. You know, I don't know, but it feels to me like they took that as a tacit assumption about what literature should do. I don't think they would have any problem saying that a story is supposed to give you some guidance in life or give you some sustenance or make you alert to the world. I think they understood that that was what they were for, and they they wrote accordingly. There's that famous line of Franz Kafka's where he says that a novel should be an axe for the frozen sea inside of yourself, which is such a wonderful phrase. Mm -hmm. Do you have that feeling with these writers that they sort of break up? There's almost violence there. They break up something inside of you, and and all these kind of feelings and thoughts just come rushing out. Yes. I, I always feel that, you know, I don't know if it's just me. I think it's not. I think most of us go through life a little bit on autopilot. Our brains teach us to group objects and see them in a certain conventional way, and then you know, contemporary life confirms that. You know, we don't have time. We're we're rushing through our day. We're trying to accomplish quite simple things. Uh, I think these stories sometimes, for me, they just work like a little slap on the head. Like, hey, you're alive. 
you know, and, and, and you're not going to be forever. So take a little breath and look around, you know, and, and ask if these uh, surfaces that are presenting to you are all that there is. And for me, it's just when I come out of a Chekhov story, everything is more interesting. Trees are more interesting because they were in the story, you know, mm-hmm. uh, human foibles are interesting because Chekhov just celebrated them. So I think it's kind of a, for me, I think it's a bit of a ritual way of um, reorienting oneself to the world. And I, I think it wouldn't be exaggerating to say it's somewhat like prayer. It works somehow in the same way. The Darwinian impetus in us is to go fast and to, to group things and to conceptualize and actually to kind of rush past the world. And I think like prayer, these stories can kind of just slow that down a bit for a short time, which is actually a pretty, a pretty great thing to do for oneself. George, do you remember when one of these stories, a Chekhov story, cracked open something inside of you the first time you really heard uh, what Anton Chekhov was trying to do in one of these short stories? I, I do, Richard, because I, you know, I'd read Chekhov dutifully when I was in my twenties, and I, it didn't really, he didn't really speak to me. I was kind of more into, um, you know, Barry Hanna and Hemingway and Vonnegut and writers who were a little more in voice. You know, they were kind of uh, showing off a bit in, in voice, and I, I still like that. Uh, and the Chekhov, I always thought, yeah, these kind of gray stories about ordinary people that, I, I don't know, I, I like some trout fishing, you know, or something more dramatic. <laughs> uh, and then when I first got to Syracuse, our teacher, Tobias Wolf, who's a wonderful, great short story writer, uh, he was giving a reading, and I think because he had the flu, he decided he wouldn't read his own work, he would just read us some Chekhov. So he read this thing called the, um, the Little Trilogy, which is three stories, kind of amazing. It must have been an hour and a half reading all told. But the the middle story is called Gooseberries, and that's in this book that I've just written. And um, that was a huge moment. I was probably 26, and I was in the program, so I was supposedly a writer, but I I was kind of unsure if that's really what I wanted to do, mainly because I didn't really, you know, I had the feeling as a musician of, of knowing the one band that I wanted to emulate. You know, for me, as a kid, it was Led Zeppelin. There was no question that was the apex. <laughs> I never really had that in, in writing. So check, uh, Toby Wolf reads us uh, Chekhov, and he had the room in the palm of his hand. I mean, people were laughing and crying and looking at, at each other kind of in wonder, like, how is this happening? And it was almost like Chekhov was in the room with us. He, Toby was just channeling him. And for the first time, I understood what, a, what an incredible repository of wit and also of love, a story like that can be. And nothing happens in it, really. It's a very simple, almost almost an anecdote. Uh, but for me, it was the reaction of the crowd around me that really, I, I, I couldn't help notice it. All of my sort of cynical young peers were just swept up. And all of the older teachers who'd come out out of a sense of obligation were swept up. Uh, so I think what it did was it sort of, you know, if I had any doubts about whether a short story writer was an honorable, honorable vocation, in that hour and a half, we swept all those all those doubts away. How about the key to immortality as well? Because suddenly, as you're hearing this, this long dead Russian dude is suddenly a living, breathing young man in the room with you, sort of tugging at your coat, trying to win you over. Exactly. Trying to win you over is a big thing too, isn't it? For me, it is. Yeah, I, it's helpful to think of writing as a branch of stand-up or a branch of... Um, entertainment. I imagine an audience and I'm really trying to win them over. Partly because that kind of fits with my personality. I I don't mind that stance. But you know what any writer is, or I guess any artist is looking for is a way to proceed. You know, if I sit down in the morning, on what basis can I work up some energy? And when I was younger, I I 
misunderstood that that must be being smart, you know, uh, knowing something you don't know, Richard, and dropping it on you, you know, and, and yeah. earning your subservience, uh, you know, pr- proving that my trip to Asia was not a waste of time, you know, some very kind of patriarchal dominance uh, literature, you know, and, uh, and of course that, does, that doesn't work. It doesn't work on a date. It doesn't work in America. It doesn't work in literature. <laughs> So I gave up, and there was a one pivotal moment when somehow I, I had written something purposely to be funny, to, you know, a set of poems, Susian poems, and that made me realize that for me the best approach was to be an entertainer and imagine a living, breathing, really smart, really lovely human being over there, and I'm just trying to keep her reading, you know. So for me, that's kind of the first law of, of fiction. The title of your book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, comes from one of those Chekhov short stories, Gooseberries, the one you were just talking about. And it's just got this wonderful short passage in it that you preface the book with as well. I'd just love you to read that passage, please, if you could, George. Oh, sure. Ivan Ivanich came out of the cabin, plunged into the water with a splash and swam in the rain. Thrusting his arms out wide, he raised waves on which white lilies swayed. He swam out to the middle of the river and dived and a minute later came up in another spot and swam, swam on and kept diving, trying to reach bottom. By God, he kept repeating delightedly, by God. He swam to the mill, spoke to the peasants there, and turned back, and in the middle of the river lay floating, exposing his face to the rain. Birkin and Aljohan were already dressed and ready to leave, but he kept on swimming and diving. By God, he kept exclaiming, Lord have mercy on me. You've had enough, Birkin shouted to him. In this story, I love how it begins. It's sunny, then the weather turns bad. It turns into one of those kind of crappy, sort of wet, gloomy afternoons as these two men are walking through the countryside. Everyone's shoes are wet. Then, bit by bit, things become warm and delightful in a way. He has this swim in the pond in the rain. And uh, do you remember that as a kid? I can remember going for sw- being in a swimming pool as a kid, and it starts to rain. And and me and my friends are still in the pool, sort of enjoying the silliness of it. Yes. And also, there's always that. There's some adult saying, but the lightning's going to hit the pool, yeah. which of course yeah. it never does. But that makes it extra fun. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It's, it's like, come in out of the rain and you're wet already. It's kind of mad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, it's not quite clear who's being silly in this situation. Tell me what you love about that passage, particularly that one where he's... Yeah. Swimming. You know, when I... When I um, part of my, my goal in writing this book was, I'm, I'm 62 years old, 60 when I started. And I just wanted to take a little pause and say, you know, you've been obsessed with, with stories your whole life. So I thought maybe it'd be good to take a little pause at one, see if I still want to do it, which I'm sure I do, but also maybe just deepen my connection so that I do it better in these next years. So <clears throat> read all these Russian stories really deeply. And in the process, I found something out that I didn't really know. You know, I think I had always operated on the premise that a story posed a question and then daringly answered it. And these Russians, and especially Chekhov, they seem to see it a little differently. They ask a question... And then they answer it multiply. They'll ask a question, give one very valid answer that kind of astonishes you with its wisdom. And then they'll sort of seemingly say, on the other hand, and run over and answer it a completely opposite way, which is also wise. And then the writer kind of turns to you and just smiles and says, yeah, that's how it is in this world. That's why people are so confused. That's why life is difficult, because these questions that are, you know, as you go up the scale of questions, the the most important ones are the hardest to answer. So <clears throat> this moment in the story seems to sum up for me that, that beautiful f- feeling of several contradictions 
living at once. So Ivan is in the pond. Uh, later we find out that he's a guy who actually is very anti-happiness. He thinks it's decadent. Well, there he is, naked, you know, living it up. Um, and meanwhile, his friend, who's kind of a grouch, Birkin, is barking at him to get out of the water. Uh, we kind of turn against Birkin, why he's such a grouch. And yet, he's kind of right. You know, this guy is kind of being a little bit selfish. How can it be, as you said, how can it be pleasurable to swim when it's raining? Well, it kind of is. So I just love the way that that scene kind of puts all these contradictions into the air and then has the courage not to come down on the side of any of them, you know? That, that almost seems to say, such is life. Ivan's not a young man, and he's swimming in this pond in the rain like a boy, you know, swimming down to touch bottom, which is what you do when you're a kid, and he comes up and feels all this joy and absurdity welling up in him, and he screams out, by gods, you know, as you do when you're, you're, you're kind of overwhelmed <laughs> by something mad and a bit majestic, which is swimming in a pond in the rain. And, and later on, as you say, he makes this speech once they're all warm and dry inside, and they've all, they're all clean, they've, they've, all, they've all bathed, it's lovely. But he starts to complain about happiness, as you say, and he says, behind the door of every contented, happy man, there ought to be someone standing with a little hammer and continually reminding him with a knock that there are unhappy people, that however happy he may be, life will sooner or later show him its claws and trouble will come to him. Now, when, when he says such a thing, reminds us that none of us have any business being happy while there are unhappy people in the world, are you persuaded by that when you read that, George? I, I am. The first time uh, when I come back to this story after a year off, I'm always persuaded because I think there's a deep wisdom in that. I, the way he's speaking to me is he's saying, okay, George, when you publish a story and you're so happy about it and you get praised, is there any real validity to that? You know, you were, you were born with a certain ability, you develop it, but that was also kind of inborn. And now you cash in. And meanwhile, Somebody out there, there's someone who um, is near suicide. Somewhere, there's someone who's just had their heart broken. So I think it's a sort of an argument against wallowing in happiness or trusting that happiness is some kind of is in some way related to virtue. You know, it's it's basically saying happiness is conditional and it comes and goes. So don't put too much weight on it. And I totally believe in that. And then at some point, you remember that this guy is the same one who is just out of breath in the pond. And th that's the contradiction that, for me, makes the story. Because you say, well, which one is the real Ivan? And he says, well, obviously both, you know. And it sort of underscores something that we all know, which is that we contain multitudes. You know, if you're um, somebody who really believes that no one should ever overeat uh, and you live by that, someday you're going to overeat. <laughs> of course, you know. <laughs> you wouldn't be a human being if you didn't. The funny thing is, though, like you might be persuaded by that, that argument that you've got no business being happy when there are so many unhappy people in the world, but it's a really boring argument to make. And what's kind yes. of funny in the story is that his two mates go, oh, is that the time I'm going off to bed now? See you later, Ivan. And it would be tiresome to hear that if you're at a party, someone telling you that no one's got any business here being happy while, while there are unhappy people right. in the world. Right. One of the things I get from this story is that, yes, you see him explosively happy in, in the pond, and he's not trying to be happy. So maybe, maybe, maybe happiness isn't something you find, but something that finds you. Yes. What do you think of that, George? Yes, I think that, that's beautiful. And, and, you know, the other thing is we, we all know somebody like this, and we've all been this person who, you know, develops some deep moral belief and then preaches about it at a party. And as you say, that can often be such a buzzkill, you know, even if they're right, even if they're right. You know, if I come to somebody's child's birthday party and give a very big speech about global warming. I'm right. We are on the fast track to hell. 
but it's also somehow unkind, you know, in that setting. But what Chekhov is so good at is saying, well, I love both of those manifestations of you, you know, or, I, or I'm interested in both manifestations. And of course, human beings, you know, do this. I, I think it's really lovely. And this story, it tilts on its axis because happiness also becomes a little bit about duty and responsibility. It becomes about, um, as you mentioned, you know, unwarranted explosions of beauty. There's a, a serving girl in the, in the story who's just so beautiful that when two of these men see her, they just literally look at each other like in a comic sketch. They do a double take. And I think she serves a role in the story to say, yeah, you know, you can pretend that you don't want any delight in your life. You want to be an ascetic and you want to be very morally controlled. But the world is so gorgeous that every now and then it's going to, it's going to push through that veil and you're going to be delighted whether you want to be or not. The time in which these stories are written, the mid to late 19th century, it's still czarist Russia, and life is becoming increasingly impossible. The whole society is incredibly oppressive. The country is run by hopelessly incompetent and greedy bureaucrats. The czar, by and large, is a, is a buffhead and an autocrat, and there's no place for political discussion, which is one of the things why Russian literature is so powerful. It's one of the few places where you can actually have a discussion of ideas and change in this kind of compressed and dangerous political situation. Mm -hmm. Do you see that awful social and political pressure of Russia sort of bubbling under the surface of these stories, George? I I think so. I mean, I can feel it in Chekhov for sure. And, you know, whenever he talks about, as Ivan does in the Gooseberries, about uh, why are we putting off happiness? You know, he's kind of talking about why are we putting off the radical changes that that we know have to come. But I think you're right. Part of the beauty of these stories, I think, is that there's a lot of obstructions. There are a lot of things that are forbidden. What I take from these stories is that there's a political story that has no politics in it. Or to say it another way, any story that looks closely at a human being's conflicted soul is inherently political. Chekhov has another story that's not in the book, but it's called Grief. It's very short, and this man uh, is a cabbie, kind of a lower-class guy, gets no respect from his riders, uh, and he soon uh, announces to one of them that his son, his young son, has just died that morning, and nobody will hear him. They, don't, they literally don't even process the words. One guy hits him with a, a whip, they're making fun of him, and two or three times he tries to just communicate to another human being that he's lost his child that very day. Then at the end of the day, he takes the horse into the stable and he just, you know, leans his head against the horse and he says, I had a son, you know, he has to tell somebody and the horse is the, the best he can do. If that's not a political story. I don't really know what is, you know, that to, to report the details of a revolution is maybe not as interesting as to report the undercurrents that caused it in the first place in, in a single human being. One of the stories in there is by the great weirdo, arguably the weirdest of the Russian writers at the time, Nikolai Gogol, the the short story called The Nose, which is quite a famous short story. It begins with a, a barber who's with his wife. He sits down for breakfast to have some bread and an onion. That alone, we're off to a good start there, I think, an onion for breakfast. And then <laughs> and, and finds, a, finds in the middle of his piece of bread a human nose. And the reaction to it is very odd. And he feels embarrassed and ashamed and worried, troubled by it. So he drops it in the river in St. Petersburg. Meanwhile, across town, a clerk just wakes up and discovers that the nose has disappeared entirely from his face. It, where a nose once was is now uh, a flat pancake-like surface. 
And this distresses him enormously because he's worried he's not going to appear respectable in St. Petersburg society anymore. Then as he's out in the street, <laughs> he's, he, he, sees, <laughs> he sees a carriage pull up in front of a house and he sees his nose get out of a carriage in a dress uniform, rush into the house and then come back out of the house again. It's also strange. It's like a story that's related to you by a very excitable drunk. Yeah. What, do you, what do you make of this story, George? Well, that, that's a great description. Yeah, the, the events are within it are weird. The relation between the events don't make sense. And it's narrated by somebody who doesn't seem to know how to tell a story. <laughs> you know, and, and yet it's beautiful. I think yeah. Gogol's my hero. And I think the reason is that that thing I just said, events that don't make sense, events that are in weird relation to each other, narrated by a crazy person, is basically real life. I mean, we, we like to think that, for example, I know that I am the fixed, stable, sane person at the center of this human drama and I and my opinions are well considered and compassionate and they're very you know so then I walk out into the street and there's my world but in fact as we all find out at moments of stress that person George you know or Richard is also askew oh yeah quite an unreliable narrator yes unreliable narrator so then is if we I guess the point is if we all understand that we are a series of unreliable narrators narrating a world that that because of our sensory apparatus we can only partly apprehend anyway that starts to explain some of the mayhem and also some of the beauty of, of the world and Gogol it's so interesting because he was a real strange guy you know and he only sort of had his talent under control for about 10 years and in that time he wrote arguably one of the great novels uh, Dead Souls two of the greatest short stories The Nose and the Overcoat and one of the great plays of all time, The Government Inspector. And then somehow this fragile balance between his personal strangeness and his sort of artistic arbitration ability broke. And he became kind of a religious fanatic and stopped writing. So he's, uh, he's kind of a hero to those of us who know it will never be Tolstoy. <laughs> but, but, you know, that would be a day when you could be Gogol for a half an hour or something. Podcast. Broadcast and online. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feindler. For me, George, the most powerful of these stories in this collection is a Tolstoy short story called Master and Man. There's a wealthy landowner and his peasant labourer who go out on a winter's evening in the snow to go to a, a village some some miles away because the landlord wants to buy the land and he's a bit greedy and wants to get there right now so he can gazump the other people who might want the land. It seems like a, quite a mild story to begin with. And then there's this awful deepening sense of dread. What do you think Tolstoy is doing there with this story as, as we follow these two men as they go into the snow mm-hmm. at night? Well, oh, I always teach this story as, as um, kind of a shadow cousin of A Christmas Carol which is, it, it poses the question, well, it's kind of two questions. One, are there bad people in the world? And the story goes, yeah, let me show you one. And here he is. Uh, and that's a lot of the fun of the story is just watching this guy be just, you know, reliably tone deaf to any kind of human connection. He's a real, he's a real dope. Then the second and more important question is, okay, now that we've made a, a flawed, evil person or a bad person, is there any hope for this guy? Can he change? And then maybe the third question, which Tolstoy knocks out of the park, is if, if you claim yes, 
how does that happen? You know, we, we all know plenty of, of people in the world who were bad and really didn't change. Maybe they even got worse. So, so, so Tolstoy is going to follow these two men. Part of his job is to show us that Vasily, the landowner, is deeply rotten. And then he's going to try to um, just, well, I won't give the end away, but there, before the end of the story, he's going he's gonna to make the case that such a man can change. And that's a huge venture. And within that, you know, he, start, he just through the most simple, specific sentences, he develops these two men. Uh, Vasily is greedy. He only thinks of himself. His thought patterns are very much about self-praise and celebrating his accomplishments and about you know, setting himself apart from everybody, including his wife. He's, he's, he's a god on earth. Uh, the peasant, Nikita, meanwhile, is always looking at other things. He's, he's, he's mindful of the animal. He's mindful of a cook's husband. Uh, he's, he's, got, he's not perfect. He's a drinker. But, um, you know, so Tolstoy distinguishes these two men. And then in one of the most chilling uh, scenes I've ever read, he, he, he puts him in real danger, you know. And uh, so to me, it's, it's just a story about if, and, and, and of course, the way we read it is, unless we're perfectly content with ourselves morally, we, we read the story to be a reflection on whether we ourselves and the time left are going, to, are going to be able to break out of the habits that have so far kept us within a fairly narrow border of behaviors. You know, can we become better? Can we... Uh, sort of transcend our limitations. There's a radical thought in this story too, certainly radical for its time. I mean, Tolstoy himself was a very, very wealthy landowner and an aristocrat among one of the highest families in Russia. And yet the theme of this story reflects his old-fashioned Christian belief Mm -hmm. that the soul of the landlord is of no more importance than the soul of the peasant, Nikita. That's quite a radical thought for its time in Tsarist Russia. I, th- I don't know. I think it probably was, but Tolstoy also was such a, uh, a you know, kind of a beautifully, radically Christian in that way, and, and he would have agreed 100% with what you just said. Um, but I think he goes a step further in this story and another one called The Death of Ivan Illich, which is he, you know, on one level he says a, a, a person must humble himself before God, must accept uh, God's teachings. But then he kind of shows that on the human level, I think what he's saying is that mean, to do that means you have to be aware of other people. You have to get out of your own thought patterns and actually look at Nikita and say, he's cold, that means something to me. And, you know, Vasily doesn't do that until very, very late in the story. He, he just assumes that, yeah, of course, a peasant is rather stupid and he actually doesn't suffer as much as I do. So I think for Tolstoy, somehow, if you take him at his best, he's saying that, yes, we, we are capable of understanding God's will. But when we do, it's going to come in a human-sized package and it's going to have to do everything with how we uh, regard the people around us. And one of the things he's just remarkable at doing is depicting mind states. And the, the subtle fluctuations in mind state, he can depict a very selfish self-centered person and then he in this story he shows us that mind actually through fear you know converting into someone who's suddenly like a like a you know a naked person in the woods is suddenly very aware of other people and aware of his surroundings but he does it all with internal monologue and it's just kind of miraculous so you're saying that what Tolstoy does here is we have a very, very unsympathetic character with this landlord, and we, we ask ourselves in the course of this, is, is it possible he's going to redeem himself or be redeemed in, in some way? Richard Flanagan, Australian author Richard Flanagan, says that 
sometimes when you're writing characters, they escape you. And mm. Anna Karenina is the great example of that for Tolstoy, because we all know that as Tolstoy started out, he wanted to write a novel about a disgracefully fallen woman. He wanted to write a story about a woman who'd had an affair and got nothing less than she deserved. But as he began to write it, his moral imagination took over and he ended up writing a, a deeply compassionate novel about her. Have you ever had that happen to you, uh, George, when you're writing a fictional character and they escape you? Yes. And you know, it, it happens. Uh, well, it's interesting. For me, it happens as part of the process of trying to sell you on the reality of my story. So, if my if I'm writing a story and I have a simple moral a, a demonstra- demonstrative moral agenda, I, I want to use this character to teach you a lesson. Um, at some point, that story will get very boring, you know, because I've already decided that this is a bad person and we're going to stand her together and jeer at him. Uh, the story form doesn't really like that. It's because it it sort of totally deals the um, the reader out of the process. The the, the reader is not really. Um, there, there's no doubt about the outcome. So what I find, what you find yourself doing as a writer is you have a bad character. If he's simply bad, section after section, you're going to be boring. So you have to complicate him, which means you have to look closer at him. Just as in real life, you know, you, you, the the person who uh, who pushes you aside on getting onto the subway, at first he's a terrible person. If you could follow him home. You know, and ask him some questions. You'd you'd see him assuming dimensionality. So that happens to me in stories all the time. Um, there was a story called "The Barb's Unhappiness," and my goal was to make fun of this guy I kind of knew uh, who was a real sexist and was very much a kind of a uh, an egomaniac. Was always evaluating women on the basis of their looks and so on. So I started writing the story, and it was I was having a lot of fun at this guy's expense. But there was no tension in it. He he's a terrible guy, and you know we hope a uh, a meteor hits him or something. As I started to look at him closely and to get away from the real life model and to try to find reasons for why he was so objectionable, the poor guy, you know, he coughed up some secrets to me uh, about his why he thought that way, and and suddenly I felt a little sympathy for him, and I felt the reader might too. And so in that moment, even if he doesn't become a better person you're sad to find out he didn't. And, you know, that's a form of empathy. So, yes, I think that that happens all the time. And for me, it happens just as a process, part of the process of revision. And it doesn't really happen, you know, in a big transformational way. It's just a little bit at a time. You start to, um, you know, chip away some of the stone and suddenly a human face is there in the, the sculpture in front of you. Did you hear what you just said? And this is something other writers have said to me. Oh, the poor guy, he told me he had all these secrets and all that. Does that really happen? I mean, do characters have a life of their own in your head that talk to you and, and insist on certain things despite the, and, 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 and bring you around and persuade you to change how you're going to write them? It, yes, but in a, in a very interesting and a more passive way than that. In, in this case, um, let me think. I can't remember the exact moment when it happened, um, but I found out that he had. Uh, okay, I'm trying to. I was I was writing a scene at, at a beach of all places, and it had to be uh, because of the story. It had to be a moment when uh, he was humiliated. That was just kind of what the story needed me to have. So. I'm thinking, okay, he's at the beach, he's with his his current girlfriend and, and some friends. Why would he be humiliated? And suddenly I th- I thought, oh, he's in his bathing suit. And it just occurred to me that he's got something wrong with his feet. He's got a slight um, problem with his feet that make them look sort of strange. And he's very embarrassed about this. 
So at the beach now, he doesn't want to get in the water. He doesn't want to take his shoes off. And then they kind of kiddingly insist, and he's embarrassed in front of all these people. Now, I, I didn't... I didn't know that about him. I didn't, I didn't decide that about him. It just, in the moment of him deciding whether to swim or not, this happened. Well, suddenly then, now, you know, did that exist before it popped in my mind? No, I don't think it did. It popped into my mind kind of in response to the needs of the story at that point. But then once I found that out about him, I thought, oh, that's why you're so judgmental, because you're, you're deeply anxious. You know, you feel so <laughs> inferior. So, so in a sense, yeah, he talked to me. I mean, you know, it's funny because it's, not, it's nothing mystical. It's nothing, for me anyway, it's nothing, you know, it's not like these people exist somewhere and you're channeling them. But the language of the text will sometimes give you a clue. If your goal is to continually engage the reader, you know, at that point, I think I felt that my reader would, was drifting a bit because I'd been so cruel to this guy. And so some little voice said, you know, can you give him a break? And then, you know, the scene results. That's very complicated and very beautiful. It's very and odd, it's too. real to be on the inside of that process. It, it is. It's, it's so weird. It's so very, very weird. Like your, your character sort of overpowers you in a way and says, look, you know, a, a little compassion here man you know i'm yeah, yeah. <laughs> this isn't you know there's a reason for why i'm doing doing this right. but then sometimes a writer will decide to kill a character to overpower them and and stomp on them what does it mean to kill a character that's come to life in your head well for you know I, i'm going to sound cold-blooded but for me the killing of a character would would only happen if it served the needs of the story, <laughs> meaning, meaning if the death of the character elevated the whole enterprise. And the way it would do that, uh, one way it would do it, would be to cause a reaction in, in another character. You know, to just kill somebody randomly is, is not nice. But, but if, the, if the death of the character somehow elevates the whole game, then you're obligated to do it. And I don't think, you know, I, I feel... It's words. Uh, it's words that have incredible power. But also, you're 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 always in the throes of the form itself. You know. So, uh, I'll give you an example. Another story of mine is called Victory Lap, and there's a an attempted abduction of this young girl, and there's a little boy next door who tries to intervene. So, uh, you know, I'd written the first half of it, and it was really compelling. So for me, I'm going to finish this thing, no matter what. At that point, you kind of say, okay, dear story, I, I want to serve you. I don't want to overpower you. I promise you, I will accept whatever you tell me you want to do. And, and that's one thing that, you know, stories really do have a, a will of their own. They have a desire, that, and they prove it to you by being really lively in some places and not lively in others. So as you steer towards the lively places, the story is actually demonstrating its will to you. So this story, I just said, look, I really don't want, I really don't want this to be a successful abduction because that's terrible. But, you know, as a priest in this order, I'll accept it if you, if you, if you will it, dear story, I'll take it. Then you, then you just start editing, basically, and trying to make each scene as powerful as it can be. And at some point, you Theoretically, you get to a place where the story tells you whether it wants the abduction to be successful or not. It has nothing to do with me or with my views on violence. Or it's it's really something in the DNA of the story. And one of the queasier part of, parts of the job is to say, if the story dictates this thing, I really have to go in that direction because the story is not you know it's not a documentary. It's not a catalog. It's a 
it's a self-contained little machine that has its has its destiny in it from the very first line somehow. Very strange job. It's all very strange, yeah. Uh, and I wonder if you teach your students to be comfortable with that strangeness, because rather than to fret over it, uh, but to accept the weirdness of it and enjoy the contradictions of it. Oh, oh, completely. I, I found it to be a beautiful gift because <clears throat> what it does is two things. It Well, it shows you your own mind to some extent, but more importantly, it teaches, well... You write a story for eight months, and you think it's going to be this story over here, and in the process, it turns into a totally different story that surprises the heck out of you, and it says something at the end that is so profound and that you actually did believe, but you you never imagined you'd find a way to articulate it. You know, Well, that teaches you something really deep and weird about, I would say, the power of the subconscious, because something was making those decisions all those eight months and was... Um, basically overruling your conscious everyday mind, you know, and and yet at the end of that, it produces this thing that's got more wit and intelligence and compassion and humor and organization than you could have ever dreamed. So that I think there's a kind of humility-inducing thing in that. That in my case teaches me that this everyday. Uh, rational mind of mine is only to be trusted so far because he's got a cousin who's a lot smarter who only comes out during writing time. (laughs) Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Find out more about the Conversations podcast, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. One day on uh, a couple of months ago, my son was on the train from Sydney to Canberra and there's no Wi-Fi. And so he found sitting on a seat an abandoned secondhand copy of Tolstoy's short stories oh, wow. and picked them up and started reading. And that was his intro, intro to Russian literature. It was almost like reaching out to him on a train where there was no Wi-Fi, which was, hmm. which was a fine thing. And he says to me the thing that he's become a real lover of this stuff now. And he says the thing that he likes, one of the things he likes most about Russian literature is its grubbiness. There's, there's there's so much dirt and disgustingness and earthiness in Russian literature. There's this moment in in The Master and Margarita where where a landlord from Kiev comes up to the apartment in in Moscow where the devil is living now with his sidekicks, and the sidekick one of the sidekicks attacks him with a roast chicken, and and sort of hits him over the smashes him over the head with a roast chicken and sends this land this respectable landlord tumbling down the stairs, and he sort of gets covered in chicken fat, which then picks up all the dirt and fluff and hair from the ground, and it's it's so disgusting and enormously entertaining. Do you like that about Russian literature? It's it's earthiness and grubbiness. Yeah, and that's a really great uh, read by your by your son. I, I think what I um, like about it now is what maybe repelled me a little when I was younger. I used to love the part of American literature that is a little bit obsessed with exotica. So, you know, when I was young and loved Hemingway, I just liked his lifestyle. You know, he never hung out with common people. He was always with Hollywood royalty or crashing a plane (laughs) in Africa or something. And I think in our literature, there's a lot of that kind of thing where the the writer is writing about a non-common life. Uh, um, Even Faulkner, he's writing about a real town, but it's so sort of gothic and beautifully exaggerated. But somehow for me, the... The greatest challenge is to write a piece of 
beautiful literature about a regular person, you know, sitting at a picnic table in a park or going to his job. And I guess it's, uh, you know, I grew up in Chicago around a lot of people who didn't go to college and hadn't had a chance really to get outside of Chicago. And they were living out these, you know, these human lives, but within pretty um, tight constraints of money and class and jobs and stuff. So I think early on I thought, well, wait a minute, they, it has to be the case that literature is at home there as much as it is in a trout stream in Spain or, you know, a, a palace somewhere. So for me, that's a, personally, it's an interest to say whatever being a human being is, is it's got to be everywhere. It's got to be, it's in that peasant Nikita as much as it's in the master Vasily. It's in the banal American suburbs. It's in the coal mines. It's in, you know, as much as it is in Hollywood or anywhere else. And that's an interesting aesthetic challenge because then it changes what you're looking at. You know, for example, in the first story in the book, In the Cart by Chekhov, it's just about that condition of somebody whose life is too small for her, really. You know, she's poor. He's a school teacher. She's not respected. She's alone. And um, Chekhov makes this epic thing of that, you know. So I really admire that. I admire whatever it is in him that is able to pay uh, so much close attention to a person that other writers might rush past. There's a lovely anecdote in your book, and it's taken from, I think it's the biography of Chekhov. And it's the story of the day when Chekhov went to meet Tolstoy in the countryside at Tolstoy's estate. I'd love you to tell that story. It sort of goes back to the title of your book. Sure, yeah. You know, in the writing of this book, that came very late. I did, I'd never heard that story until a few year, until this year, actually. Chekhov kind of didn't want to meet Tolstoy. Tolstoy was older. He was a great eminence. Uh, and he also had a reputation of being kind of a religious fanatic, not a fun-loving guy, uh, somebody with a lot of opinions and could be quite lacerating in person. So... Chekhov kind of, who was much younger, kind of delayed and then finally accepted the invitation and went to che- to Tolstoy's estate. And, um, you know, it's he's nervous. He's going to meet this this great man. And uh, he meets Tolstoy in the path and Tolstoy is going on, on to bathe in the pond. And he's got, a, I guess, suppose a bathrobe on and he says, come on with me. So Chekhov goes with him and they, you know, they peel off and they <laughs> jump in the water. And uh, I mean, for me, that's the, the worst nightmare. You know, you, you go to meet... Uh, <laughs> Don DeLillo or, or somebody, you know. And, and Take all your clothes so off. Sw- Take swimming. all your clothes off and jump into a pond with yeah, you. Yeah, right. Nice to meet you, Mr. Rushdie. You know. <laughs> yeah. But um, but they're sw- they swim, and uh, of course they adore each other. And they, and uh, Chekhov said, I've never loved, later, I've never loved a man as much as I love Tolstoy. And when Chekhov died, Tolstoy said, I never knew he loved me so much. But so this was a few years bef- before Gooseberries was written. So, of course, you know, Chekhov's in the water with Tolstoy, who's kind of a, you know, a stern, you could say he's an anti-happiness person. He, he doesn't trust that. He doesn't trust ego or our usual, you know, seeking of riches and fame. Chekhov expects he's going to be bored. In fact, he's delighted. And Tolstoy is a great lover of life and of everything, food and women and experience. And he's very curious. And uh, so I think Chekhov took that moment, the moment when um, his expectations were overturned. And somehow, through his great genius, he makes the story Gooseberries, in which not only is Tolstoy represented in Chekhov, but several different shadings of those people are i mean all the characters are some combination of Chekhov and tolstoy in, in that story if you see it that way afternoon to swim and then great masterpiece resulted you mentioned in your book a buddhist saying that a lesson is like a finger pointing at the moon 
What do you take that to mean, George? Well, in in the in the, this context, it's that you know our students come to to study with us, and we lay it on them. We give them aphorisms and classes and things to read, and we send them great essays by by famous writers. We send them interviews. You know, and, and any of us who are interested in writing, there's this incredible subculture of how to write materials, you know. So my only point there is to say that that stuff is all fine. But as someone who's met people who are absolute masters of that material, they've read everything, every every how-to book. They can quote every pithy saying. And yet sometimes those people can't write very well. So at the beginning of the book, I just say, look, I'm going to I'm going to hit you with a bunch of stuff. And I promise you some of it will sound good because that's what I do. But remember that you agreeing with or disagreeing with me is not the point. The point is I'm trying to basically somehow make a little explosion that pushes you up to the next level in your work. And that that's the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter if you can articulate writing insights what matters is that you can do it so in buddhism they say that you know you can go to these teachings and you can memorize things and you can do all these practices but none of that is worth anything if there's not a transformation in your in your consciousness so i think the same thing here you you know take all this writing advice lightly none of it's correct you know there's there's not a book that has all the right things there's and and none of it's sufficient we're really just trying to sort of hit ourselves with uh I always imagine, like, with an x-ray of some kind, this is going to turn us into a Superman, you know. You, you're, you're reading stories, you're reading critiques of stories, you're taking writing advice only so that the next time you get to your desk, something magical happens. And there's no value in all that all that work in and of itself. So that, that, that puts the student in the right frame of mind, which is to say, I, I'll accept anything in this book that, that lights me up, you know, because it was kind of already mine to start with. It, it's coming from inside me, you know, with the help of the book. And I'll reject anything in the book that seems to me um, lukewarm. And that, that's, I think, for me, the, the most important thing for a teacher to stress is that this is not some kind of uh, set, set of rules. It's just a series of, you know, sort of verbal uh, games that we're playing. I'm, I'm kind of just reciting poems for you in the hope that something will inspire you. So if there's a finger pointing at the moon, you're, the, the, the thought there is that don't look at the finger. Look at the moon. Right. Look at the, yeah, aspire to the moon. And the moon, in this case, is writing the book that you want to write, or maybe writing the paragraph that you want to write. George, what a pleasure it is always to speak with you. Thank you so much, George. You're a wonderful mind, Richard. I, I love talking to you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.